Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Drive Through FM. And in keeping with the sort of precedent set from last month when I did my Gen Con coverage, I'm going to keep doing this sort of on video, but those of you that are listening to it on the audio on the podcast and iTunes and all that stuff, we'll be able to just listen to it. Um, but I was just going to keep trying this thing where I still talk to a camera instead of just to a mic, and we'll kind of see how that goes, although this will be kind of a little bit more cut up than my normal reviews just a little bit. Uh, so today we've got an interesting podcast. Uh, a couple of uh, reviews to get out of the gate. I've had a chance to play some games prior to Gen Con and then after Gen Con and, you know, in the last couple of months that I haven't had a chance to get to do a full review of. Uh, some of the games that I haven't had, won't get a chance to do a full review of, I talked about a lot in my Gen Con coverage where I did a couple of days worth of coverage and then kind of in the post coverage. Uh, you know, so there's some games there that uh, will theoretically get missed if you weren't, you know, paying attention to that coverage. Uh, one that I got asked quite a bit about, for example, was a game called Unmatched from Restoration Games, uh, because I did kind of compare that to uh, the Funkoverse game in my Funkoverse review, and some folks asked me to kind of elucidate my thoughts on that. I'm not going to repeat myself here, but if you go watch the Day 2 coverage of my Gen Con coverage, <laughs> then you'll see kind of why I wasn't really super favorable about Unmatched. Uh, and then, of course, some other games there I talked about that I won't really get a chance to do a review of. I did cover there, so if you're interested about some things, maybe go check out the blog post on BGG or whatever, and then uh, you can do that. So we're going to climb through a few reviews. It looks like seven. These will be quick and brief. And then I've got an interesting sort of topic that I've been waiting to actually use and kind of have time to actually plug this in. So let's tell you a little bit about it now. And then you can look at the timestamps below if you want to jump to the reviews or if you want to jump ahead to the topic itself, then go for it. Uh, but I listened to a new podcast that came out, I think, earlier this year. Yeah, maybe spring or late winter this year in 2019 called Game Brain. And that's uh, Matthew Robinson, who lives down there in Southern California. And it's, it's sort of his podcast, but it's really his game group's podcast. And he reached out me out to me when it started up, and I you know I've, I've been listening to it ever since because uh, I really enjoyed the podcast. So the concept is, it, it's sort of Matthew's podcast. Let's just call it his for now. It's not really just his, but he will have kind of a rotating rounds of guests, all of folks that are in his gaming group. And so one week it'll be him and Billy. He doesn't have anybody named Billy, but you know him and Billy. And then the next week would be Francesca or whoever. So they kind of do like a rotating thing. So he has basically a new guest on each week, but it's really just a new co-host. And so they'll talk about the news and review a couple of the games they've played and you know come up with some kind of topic. I really like that format. It's really cool. Uh, and so the, a couple of months ago, I want to say this was probably beginning of summer, they had a very interesting topic, and I thought all of the answers that they gave to this topic were very interesting. But I also found myself, and this happens sometimes when I'm uh, listening to other folks' podcasts where I'm kind of talking at the podcast, uh, either out loud for reals or kind of in my head where I'm like, oh, that's cool, but I want to say this. Like, I want to interject that. Like, sometimes, especially when I'm listening to Seeker Cabal, it happens to all the time, when they're all kind of batting around and I want to say something, like I want to interject, and I'm like, I can't. That's super frustrating. <laughs> I don't know what it is. But, so that's something. And I found myself really wanting to kind of just muse about some of these things. And so what this topic is, I'll kind of explain it in more detail here. 
and whatever I decide to title this episode probably isn't enough to give it. So it's basically, they have a fella in their game group who plays games with them, I think, every week or, or as often as he can, but he wouldn't really consider himself like a gamer. And I'm putting the words in his mouth a little bit there, but he doesn't go visit Board Game Geek or check out the new hotness or whatever. He shows up to game night. He plays the games. He loves the games. He is fascinated by the whole hobby and everything. And I, if I remember correctly, he doesn't really have a game collection himself or anything like that. But he just really enjoys it. But he still considers himself sort of like a newbie or new gamer, someone who's kind of casually into the games. And the, he came up with a bunch of questions that he kind of had towards the hobby and that he also felt that others might have kind of that are sort of on the surface and not, you know, really delving into the hobby, you know, hardcore or anything or whatever you want to call it. But they really enjoy the hobby. They enjoy the games. And so there were some questions like he was like curious about what some of the answers would be from the other hosts that, you know, were more invested and, you know, gone so far as to create a podcast and everything. And I found all the questions very insightful. I found all the answers very insightful. So I wanted to just go ahead and completely steal the idea with a completely unabashed uh, thievery <laughs> and take the idea from them because I thought it was such a great idea. And I had just had some of my own answers, so I'm going to take the questions here and just read through them. And just, I'm curious what some of your thoughts are on these questions and specifically. And I will have a link to that actually Game Brain episode there. So if you want to jump over to their guild or something on Board Game Geek, uh, then uh, you know go for it. And uh, I just thought it was really good, and their questions were really good. So I was super excited about that, and I've been waiting, kind of holding this in my pocket. And uh, if Matthew or anybody from his group watches this, I stole it from you. <laughs> but I really like your podcast, so hopefully it's a little bit of a plug, too, for the podcast, and not just complete thievery with a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, baggage or something, I guess. So that's that topic that's going to come later, whenever the timestamp says here. And so I'm really excited about that. And then I'm also not excited to review pretty much any of the games that I'm going to talk to you about. And it's super frustrating. And I had this whole thing in my head I was going to talk about, like, being a reviewer and all that nonsense. But, you know, I think people have heard enough from me about that. And this is, like, this doesn't happen often enough for to really, like, get me down. But it's also, like, okay, am I, do I shouldn't even bother reviewing this stuff? Or, like, what do I do? If, if people want to know... And I have to like stay consistent, I think, just for my own brain, just to, for my own sanity. So when I don't like a game, I'll plug it in sort of a blacklist idea here on the podcast. And I apologize, but just to keep myself consistent, because I think if I held it in too long and never reviewed anything negative, I would go a little kooky. And uh, that's all that really matters. <laughs> so, okay. So the first game we're going to talk about is uh, Infinity, which is a miniatures game. I got their new two-player starter set. I've been very excited to play this game anytime I bring up a skirmish miniature game. There's always, I, I can tell you who their names, but I don't want to like feel like I'm calling them out. But there's like two or three people that always say you have to play Infinity before you're allowed to talk about these other games. Not really, but there's a little bit of implied, you know, that to it. And there's other random people that will say it too. So there's not just the same core, but I can I can flip a coin and one of those people will comment and say, you haven't played Infinity yet, have you? So, but other people will jump in too. So I was excited because this game has a lot of good buzz, a lot of good... Um, you know, uh, I, I think I believe they have a very good community and all that stuff. Uh, so I got the game and I read through the rules. The rules seem very interesting and crunchy. Uh, you use a D20, and so there's like facing and the way that you do the, the skill checks and everything seem really cool. So, uh, and it's very terrain heavy, and there's sort of a lot of crunch and grit and granularity to all the kind of different special abilities that you can do. And with the starter set, it doesn't really give you. 
access to all of that, but you can kind of see if you have like the full uh, rule book that you would buy separately. Let's say you got the starter and wanted and played it and liked it, and then you wanted to dive in and kind of build up, you know, one of the factions and you had a favorite and you got really heavily involved, and you got the big thick rule book, which is like the size of a Dungeons and Dragons uh, game master book or something. Uh, so a lot of the crunch and stuff is going to be in there, but the core mechanics are pretty straight miniature game stuff, you know, move around and shoot and facing and do roll offs and stuff like that. So I got the models and started putting them together. Now they're metal models. And so I've been very reticent about putting them together because I've had a struggle with metal models before. And these are, uh, okay. So I feel like for me, I'm not like the most experienced miniature person, but like the worst metal models I've ever had to play with and try to put together. Some of them go together nice, and then some of them that went together were like all skewed and just like didn't look right. Even though they fit right, they, you know, they, they went together like how they're supposed to fit. When I looked at them after a few minutes, I was like, oh, that looks terrible. And then some of the others, like there's no instructions. There's some super, super tiny pieces, like impossibly tiny. I'm like, is this a shaving? Is this some flash? Oh, this is actually a little armor panel. Oh, okay, where's this go? I have no idea where this goes. Why does this guy have two of them? I can see where this one goes, but not where this other one goes. Why is there two here? And there was just constant nonstop stuff. And then I said, you know what? I'm, I'm fed up. I'm sticking to my rule of no metal miniatures as far as if you have to assemble they better be like you have to plug an arm in and that's it and i know they have these these miniatures are meant to be uh very i'll say delicate but very like athletic looking and uh you know they're very skinny and and you know sort of like a a track athlete might look they're not like a football player athletic they're more of a track athlete and uh and I was just very upset at the at the moment. And my wife was like, I've never seen you this frustrated, you know, when you're putting together the miniatures. I've seen you sit down and put together a whole bunch of terrain or like 50 miniatures uh, from other games. And she said, I've never seen you so like frustrated by this. And I said, no, because it, I said, people have told me that these metal miniatures are not like the other metal miniatures and it's not that big a deal, blah, blah, blah. And I'm frustrated because I want to play this game, but I also like, no way can I, as Joel, recommend the game to, to folks. I can't. I can't do it. Because this is not something that I would I would want to do. I'm not going to waste my time with the miniatures. So, you know, that's a bummer. So, I know probably I'll get some flack for it. At least respect my point of view. Because I know there's some people that are fans of the game. I'm not. I'm not saying the game's bad. I'm just saying it's the metal miniatures and stuff are not worth my time in 2019. That's all I got to really say about that game. The mechanics and everything seem really fun. And so I'm like, well, it doesn't really seem any better or worse than like a crunchy game like Necromunda or something. You know, I'm rolling a D20 versus a couple of D6 rolls. Okay, sure. I mean, you might like one more than the other and go ahead and debate that with a few people. Uh, but it's just, I'm just, this is, it's put me in a mood. So, so that's the new two player starter set from infinity. Uh, you know, just, it's, it's kind of a non, non-starter for me, the way that the miniatures were. Uh, okay. So the next game is a new game from uh, games workshop called storm vault. And this is a new Barnes and Noble exclusive game. They've got three coming out. Uh, one's Combat Arena, one is a new Warhammer Underworlds, and then there's Storm Vault. So one of them is not, I'm not a huge fan of at all. Uh, they came out with a Lord of the Rings uh, board game last year that was also a Barnes & Noble exclusive. And this is the same mechanics as that game, which I reviewed unfavorably a year ago, but this is now a co-op. 
So you have the same sort of random setup of special event cards and locations on the board, but instead of players competing to steal the one ring, which didn't make any sense in The Lord of the Rings, this is now a co-op, and you're all stormcast eternal knights of lightning that are trying to kind of fight back the uh, forces of chaos. I was like, okay, so maybe this might actually work better as a co-op. And I was, you know, really kind of looking forward to checking out the game because the mechanics are pretty smooth and elegant. It might be a nice family game. It does not really work at all for with, <laughs> with, with even if it being a co-op. It's too much like the, the the real problem is here is just the complete total randomness of the game. Uh, well, the way you set the cards up around the board is 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 nothing i mean it's not really good or bad you just have these random cards associated with these different random locations and you get events or boons and things like that that are going to help or hurt you and then you have this like random 1d6 roll combat that is like completely impossible to mitigate most of the time and the game can just kind of go one way or the other the two times i played it was like super wild swingy stuff and i never felt like i was really involved and I guess sometimes you could like lean on the crush of like, well, it's a good family game, it's simple. But I'm like, man, I mean, there's a lot of good family games that are simple that are really good games. And so it's a disappointment. I didn't really expect much out of the game, but it just was like, oof. It's got some nice models and stuff in there, but, uh, you know, I don't know. To me, it's, it's barely a game that's worth even like breaking open. That's, uh, that's anyway, that's Storm Vault from Games Workshop, uh, one of the new Barnes and Nobles. I would, uh, I may get around to talking about the others, um, later on, maybe this month here. Um, uh, the, the new Warhammer Underworlds one, which is Dreadfane, which is, it's a neat little like self contained Underworlds box, but you can also expand it. But it's kind of meant to be a, like a sort of a, a starter. Uh, beginner box which is cool and then the other one is combat arena which is a sort of uh, um, gore chosen which came out a couple of years ago which is really again it's very silly dice chucking fest but it's really fun and and so and that's like gladiatorial corn warriors fighting and this is sort of like a i feel like they're in a training simulation but it's like 40k uh gore chosen and so it's Basically the same exact game, <laughs> really. Uh, so if you like the Gore Chosen, be one of a 40k one, then then you should get this. And I think it's not a super high strategic game, but it is just a lot of fun. Anyway, so that's uh, getting back to the point. That's Storm Vault. Uh, the next game I want to talk about is a new release coming out from uh, Come On, Simon, uh, and this is God of War, the card game. Uh, this is another one now. I'm not going to be beating up on stuff as much now going forward beyond those first two games. Now, this one, though, is a little bit teetering on on uh, on quality for me because there's one thing I really like about this game. So what it is, you're playing God of War, and you get some of the characters out of the video game. I've not played any of the God of War games. It's not really a style of game that I gravitate towards as far as video games. And you take different characters in it. And you play through these different levels. So the way that the levels and the sort of quests that you set up for the game are really, really cool. So you'll have um, like a scene that you'll build, like a um, uh, almost like a mural, like a screenshot of this like crazy level and stuff going on uh, in the video game. And so you'll interact with this mural. They're made up with cards that basically act as tiles, depicting a scene you can interact with in different ways as you move your characters around. And that's a really cool, like, that's a neat part of the game. 
Uh, the other thing is that you sort of shuffle up this like quest deck and then you build like a pyramid of cards that you have to kind of go through. So as you kind of work your way through like an inverted pyramid, you start at the point and then work your way up to the base. You'll have to go through, you have to basically complete three quests. And that top row is like three final bosses that you'll have to choose from. But the ones that you don't choose from as you move up through the pyramid, that you flip those quest cards over and those will be hindrances on you know your player abilities and stuff like that. Usually it's like a little starting uh, hindrance, like you gotta, uh, you know, everybody takes a hit point damage or something, um, and the more interesting than that. But, so as you go through there, you know, you play through it. So that, those two parts are really neat. I really like those parts. But the thing that you're doing is you're basically playing attack, uh, melee cards, attack range cards and defense cards, or cards that say plus one or plus two or plus three or plus six. And that's it. And you're interacting with cards on the on the scene with those cards. So you're maybe fighting a monster that's on there, and then you flip over like an event card, which it will trigger one of those cards in that mural in that tapestry there. And then those cards you can then acquire and put into your deck. So it's kind of like a deck building game as well. So the cards are like dual purpose. They'll flip over and they'll activate a rune which will be at certain cards in the level, which will then fight back to you or do something. And then you take those cards and then you put them in your deck and there'll be like little bonuses and stuff sort of as you level up. So the way that you kind of interact with the cards, so sometimes you fight a card and it'll flip, which will flip another card and you'll like uncover a rune, which you uncover another rune to get a chest or a treasure. And then they get more complicated as you go along. That is neat. And that is super neat. And I like how you work through the levels, but the act of playing attack cards like 95% of the time is super not fun because you just like attack attack and then okay I did uh, six damage and there the monster rolls for defense and they maybe block some or none and then you know you move around and then they fight you back and then if you have defense cards you get to play defense cards and one of the games we played I played this one twice as well one of the games we played one of the characters died on the first first or second and they had like literally nothing they could do about it. They just had nothing. And so they're out of the game and they had to sit there while the other players were, you know, having to play through the game. And it was like, what, how could you just die that fast? And then it was like, ah, this is just not that great. And I wish they would take that system of that mosaic, that mural of characters and stuff you interact with and the whole quest thing. Cause you kind of replay the game and you have like kind of different, uh, procedurally generated quests and stuff. Uh, that all that stuff was cool, but if you had like some cards that like did stuff, like you you know he had like some actual decks that like had effects and things. Like think about oh I don't know uh, Pathfinder Adventure card game, the Warhammer Quest card game, uh, Heroes of Tyranoth, some of that kind of stuff. Some of these LCG games or something like that. You had like a specific deck that you could build for each character that was like unique and felt like you were playing that character. But these are just like numbers with attacks on it. I was like oh my gosh. And then the upgrades you get, it was like, oh, cool, this is a plus six, great. Like, that was just completely, like, flattening and disheartening that how that worked. So I hope somebody kind of steals those two ideas with the quests and kind of the mural idea. And the way that you could kind of get cards flipping on that mural would sort of change the look of the environment that you were in. That was so cool. But just the actual, the actual game was like, oh, this is so boring. So, anyway, that's God of War, the card game. Now the next one is Tribes uh, Dawn of Humanity. It's a new one coming out from Cosmos. Was not super interested in this one. Now they did send me a couple of games. 
and uh, one of which, one or two of which actually, I'll probably be talking about next week or the week after that I've enjoyed. Uh, but this one, I, I didn't really know anything about it. I thought it looked pretty, and it does look pretty. And then I read the rules, and I was like, oh, this actually seems like it's kind of fun. Uh, because it's sort of like pre... It's like the the, the, the prologue or the setup to an, another larger civilization game. Uh, and so, just to kind of boil this one down, it is super boring. Now, the mechanics are a little bit tricky to just kind of talk through. But what it kind of boils down to is you're just kind of moving up a bunch of different tracks. So you have like your own little sort of tableau of hexes and things, and you're moving uh, characters around there, and you're creating new characters, uh, little figures that you move around, and you're trying to cover up different like resource locations, which allow you to like buy cards and stuff, and and well, not buy cards, but put your little marker on a card and sort of build up sort of a tech tree idea. And the action selection thing on paper it looks interesting, where you like you choose an action. And then, you know, you do that, you do like a move or, or pro, uh, you know, reproduce, you know, have a baby. And then it goes to the back of the list of the actions. If you want to do another one, you'll, you'll put another resource cube on there uh, to like to pay for it. And then so if somebody takes that action, then they get the cubes that are on it. So, but it's just like, you, you really feel like you're, you're basically doing nothing the entire game is what I kind of felt like. Like I was just, it just felt like you're so much just going through the motions and just shoving cubes around. Like it just sucked every inch of theme out of it. And it, it was just, again, it was just like a dud of, of a game that just had no like inspiring like emotion coming out of the game at all. Um, it's really hard to quantify. I expect, like some people, I feel like some people would like this and then they would probably play it like twice and then be like, don't like it now. And I actually played this one with the family, and man, I've never seen, I've seen my game group get super bored when they're playing a game, but never my family. They're like, this is so boring. And I'm like, I know, isn't it? And then, so I've, man, I've, I don't want to harp too much, but it takes something for my family who is, you know, we play games every couple of weeks, and, you know, they're usually interested to try whatever, even if it's weird and, and clunky and stuff. They're still kind of like at the point where they're like, oh, that no, no, was kind of interesting how they did, you know. Um, but no, they were super bored by this, as was I. I was bored to tears. Uh, so anyway, that's Tribes on Humanity. I know it's, it's, it's hard to really quantify this one because it is a, it's an abstract Euro. It's a lot of pushing cubes and stuff like that and you know, action, uh, you know, efficiencies and all that. So it's hard for me to really kind of pin down like, well, this is weird and this didn't do that right. Because it's just it's just a flat, boring game. There was no like inspiration that came out of it. Um, so anyway, that's uh, the tribe Sonic Humanity. And now the last three here are um, games that I actually do like, but fell flat for one reason or another, and uh, to the point where I'm like, ah, I don't I don't need to do a video on these. So the the first one here is the new uh, Chronicles of Crime expansion which is called Welcome to Redview. I had to remind myself of the name. So this has some elements that I, I really like. I've liked the base game of Chronicles of Crime. I've liked the noir version. That's probably my favorite version of it. And this is sort of basically Chronicles of Crime, Stranger Things, uh, because you'll play as a group of kind of teenagers or, or, or tweens, and you're sort of uncovering a mystery of the town. And it's a, I think it's a four or five, uh, episode campaign and you kind of play through them in chronological order i played for the first two 
and you choose characters so you actually are a character in this one um, and so each player will get a character and it will sit in front of them and so you can play with uh, you don't have to actually have all four in play kind of like the base game you had four sort of specialists that you could call but you always had all four in play no matter how many people are sitting around the table you could have two people or you could have six people and those are always in play whereas this you take each a character and then uh, when you do a task sometimes it will have you roll a die against your stats of the character. So one is like fitness, and there's like a conversation one, and then there's sort of a, like an intelligence one. It's not called intelligence, but I forget what it's called. And so you roll a die, and you have to get a five or a six to get a success. And if you can get a seven, so if you like roll a six or a five, and you have like a plus one or a plus two, then you can get a seven. That actually counts as two successes. And so sometimes it'll say, do you want to try to like break into this building or try to sweet talk this person or whatever? So each uh, player will roll a die for their character to sort of see if they win and, uh, and succeed at that. Which, uh, again, with the D6, just rolling a D6. Um, now, you, each of your characters has like these energy tokens that you can spend. And the characters have all different stats. And they also have different amounts of energy tokens. So some might be kind of like, eh, they're not that great, but they have a lot of energy. And some are like really good at a lot of stuff, but they only have like one energy token. So they get the one reroll. And so when you go back to bed, because you've got to get home before you get grounded, which is neat, uh, you refresh all your energy tokens, you go at it the next day. Um, and so the problem with this is, is it's not as good as Noir. Whereas Noir, you really felt like you were pushing your luck and like changing the story if you passed or failed the events with some of the certain things you could stalk somebody in noir, you could break in, uh, there was you could kind of like intimidate people, but you were really pushing your luck by doing that. Just the choice of doing that would change the gameplay. Whereas this, if you failed, it would just like waste time and like effectively waste your score because it would just eat up time. And it never felt like you really were changing the story up. And you could just go back and try it again. And it was like, oh, what? And then the, as far as like the story goes, I don't really want to spoil anything, but I was like super not, so in my head, and this is part of my problem, I was like, oh, this is like Stranger Things. And the story was not like really like Stranger Things. I didn't finish it, but the first time I was like, ooh, I'm so bored by this story. I don't like any of these people that I'm interacting with. They were just not that dynamic or fun. It was like, this person is a pain in the butt just to be a pain in the butt. And you can like see that coming a mile away. It was just like, I just couldn't get into the story. And again, the whole like, you know, doing a skill check to see if you succeed was a bummer because this is a D6. And then, but the, the real sort of kind of sort of compounding on that was like when I failed, it didn't matter. It wasn't like, you know, you were you were grounded or the story took a turn or you know something catastrophic happened or anything like that and so it just felt very meaningless now the actual mechanic of doing that die roll i don't like it but that in itself is not a huge deal breaker because the way that you do it is each player rolls a die and you take turns and so when it's my turn to roll a die i'm like i roll it okay i failed so i have only let's say two uh, energy tokens to do a reroll maybe i have four and I'm like, okay, well, I've got a lot, so I'm gonna spend it. Even though I'm not good at this stat, I may spend it. And then the next person will go, and then they can go until... So there's a real interesting way of saying, okay, you start the rolling. So you do them one at a time. So the order that you do the rolling and stuff, you can kind of play around with that a little bit. So that is kind of interesting because it kind of gets you into this mental space of, well, Sally, she's really good all around athletic and smart and everything, she's great. 
And then, you know, Frankie over here, he's, you know, he's a, he's a little kid. He's super smart, not fit at all, you know, that. But, you know, then you're kind of looking at the number of energy tokens and you're looking at the task. So that kind of gets you into sort of the role-playing mood um, by itself. And just the kind of the, the way that you can kind of play with that turn order, so to speak, was kind of cool. So I did... That kind of won me over a little bit with the D6 roll, which I still end up not liking, but because, like, the ramifications were like, oh, you wasted 10 minutes. It's like, well, okay, now I get to do it again? Like, I shouldn't be able to just try it again? And I should have been, like, arrested? Or, you know, I don't know, something dr- funny or dramatic happens, like, send this story a bunch of different ways. Um, whereas, so just kind of coming off noir, this was, like, a huge, like, drop for me in terms of, like, the compellingness of the game. Anyway, so that's Chronicles of Crime. Uh, welcome to Redview. Uh, the next thing is Everdell Pearlbrook, and uh, this is the expansion to Everdell, which I really enjoyed last year. Uh, and so this adds, this is interesting, because it adds like not a lot of stuff to the game, but the little that it does add can somehow, seems like it adds like a bulk of time to the game, especially when you play it uh, with four players. And the time is not such a big deal. Like, I only played it twice. I played it two-player and four-player. The four-player game we played was, frankly, excruciatingly long. We did have a couple of new players at the at the table. Uh, but they're pretty, you know, crafty gamers. And uh, then myself and another fellow there, he we both played it before. And, you know, uh, but even myself, well, I've played the base game probably ten times, something like that. And... You know, even me, the thing with this game is, though, this is what I'm trying to get out of here, is the base game even is super tight when you start the game up. Like, it's very easy to feel like you're going off the rails. You're not going to be able to do anything. You're like, how am I going to build more than three cards? You know, that, the, the base game itself already has that. Um, but I played it enough, and it gives you kind of, there's enough kind of going on in terms of, like, the quality of cards that are in the deck. Uh, that you can you get yourself out of it and you feel like really good about it and, you, and then you get a little bit of engine you can kind of get your engine turning and that's what I really liked about Everdell. And this one has um, in it like even more of that because you added a new resource you added to pearls you added these uh, um, these cards that you, you you are going to the pond and you have these uh, adornment cards that you're trying to do which are really good you can spend a pearl on it and it'll like inject you some. Uh, some resources or something and then give you kind of an end game bonus target to go after and they got some new monuments and stuff like that that you can go after they're worth a lot of points in this case and so they kind of play with what things are worth and how much they cost and everything a little bit here too but like when I played this game especially with the four player game I've never actually had the fear of like oh no I'm actually going to not build anything (laughs) like worth anything in this game I built like I think I had like one or two cards built and I'm like I thought I knew how to play this game. And then after, I mean, after a while, I think I got like third place, but it was just by a couple of points from first place. Not a big deal. But, you know, the engine got going, but it was like such a slog and like such, it used such amount of my brain power to like puzzle my way through that. So it turned this game, which is, a, it was a pretty much just like a medium card game. It's like an Imperial Settlers or 51st State or... You know, it's a medium weight, good chewy game. It has like a real tight economy to get going, but the card pool was such that you could sort of deal with it. Um, but now this is like, you'll have stuff in your hand and you're like, oh my gosh, like what is this? This is like, I'll never be able to do this. And you just gotta, so the new cards sort of like dilute the deck a little too much. And where it, like you sort of, I don't know, 
it just it, like it just pulls the game a little bit too tight for me uh, to really uh, get into. I wish there was like some more replacement, like you took some more cards out of the deck, and there was like maybe more cards in the expansion to sort of just change it up. Uh, because I think it's like it's good and it works and everything, but it just kind of stretches the tightness of that game to the point where, man, if you have not played this base game a few times, then getting into the expansion is going to be very difficult. And it, and the other thing is like, okay, all of that extra brain power and everything, I was like, I feel like I didn't really, it didn't really buy me anything new. They were just sort of like this, this extra stuff. Like it kind of took me out of the theme a little bit of it, of kind of building up my little village and things like that with sending my little frog worker, which you can send to the pond and then you can, you know, generate more resources and stuff. Um, it just felt like is like a little bit, you know, bolted on kind of idea. But, you know, like I didn't hate it either. So this is not definitely, this is nowhere near the category of games that I've just been previously talking about. Um, so I can almost kind of recommend it, but I would say you've got to have played like Everdell like a dozen times. And then now you really want something new and you want something to be hard. You want it to be really, uh, you know, with a lot of sort of interlocking pieces. And I think that's like none of those, none of that stuff is negative. It's just like through all that kind of struggle and everything, which I liked mechanically, like I really got into that. At the end of the day, I was like, oh, I kind of didn't really feel like it bought me anything new in terms of, you know, what what the world itself could kind of give me sort of idea, if that makes any sense. Uh, and I kind of felt like, okay, now I've kind of juggled, you know, okay, how to manage these pearls and these extra dormant cards and stuff like that. And it's like, eh, I'd rather just have an easy time playing the base game and just kind of being able to kind of work through different strategies and playing the game multiple times. Like it just added like too much extra stuff with not enough kind of payoff, basically, is what I'm trying to get to there. Anyway, so that's the Everdell Pearl Brook expansion. And then the last game we talk about is I finally got a chance to play Quacks of Quedlinburg. And that was obviously the Spiel des Jahres winner, not this past year, which was just one, but the previous year. And I hadn't had a chance to play that. And so my friends brought that and we played it. And I really did enjoy the game. Uh, and we played one of the, not one of the, one of the advanced scenarios, but it wasn't like the intro tutorial scenario or whatever, because you can configure this game a bunch of different ways. Um, if you're not familiar with it, I'd say go watch a video on it. But you basically pull tiles out of a bag and it's kind of like a push your luck idea where you pull tiles out and then you'll advance this like little token that sort of tracks this potion that you're making. And if you bust, like if you, certain colored tiles will push you above a certain number. If you do that, then you bust and you kind of like, you don't, your potion sort of explodes or whatever. And you got to, you know, you don't have as great a time in the sort of the scoring phase of that round, but you, as you play along, you get new different colored tiles in your bag, new ingredients that you can mix into your potion and stuff like that. So the theme and stuff actually works very well because you're like mixing up these concoctions and there's all these kind of different tiles and different ways to score that you can shuffle up and, and, and play. So the game will be kind of replayable that way. And then the cool, like, you know, push your luck idea, right? Because you're pulling tiles, pulling tiles, pulling tiles, like some mad, you know, alchemist in some medieval fantasy world. Uh, it's really neat that way. Um, but again, at the end of the day, I was like, I played it just the one time and I was like, oh, okay. So this one is Spill of Zars. <laughs> and like, it's cool. I can see why I would win that 100%. Like, I totally get it. Because if somebody brought it out, I would probably say, yeah, I would probably play that again. But if they presented it with other games next to it, I would be like, now nah, let me play these some of these other games, you know. So it felt good. It felt like I could probably, 
you could squeeze another play or two out of me, out of it. Um, but then I would not be super interested to play because I feel like it kind of had run its course. I like the thrill of pulling the tiles and trying to push your luck and kind of threading the needle. That was really neat. But I could kind of see... I felt like I started to kind of go through the motions towards the end of the game and just kind of doing math and being like, okay, odds of this, this and that. Okay, pull or don't pull. It's like I feel like I'm playing blackjack a little bit. And as you start to sort of crunch numbers and try to, you know, you try to play smart, right? Not just be like pulling for fun. Yay, I blew up, you know. Then then it just kind of, all the stuff deflated for me in terms of the enjoyment of it. Uh, as I kind of, started, you know, I kind of mentally broke through that barrier, that initial thing. But it's a cool game. I mean, honestly, it's, it's really cool. So that's uh, Quacks of Quedlinburg. So we're going to take a quick break, and then I'll come back and get to the fun part of the podcast. Okay, so we're back. And now we're going to talk about the what I've entitled the top 10 questions from new gamers. And again, if you missed a little blurb before, I listened to the Game Brain podcast. And this is one of the hosts that came up with these questions. This particular person is not a super hardcore gamer. Like they don't go to Board Game Geek and they don't really have a game collection. They just come to game night. They really enjoy it. And they are also very curious about what some of the other hosts on the Game Brain podcast uh, how they would answer these questions as from him coming from kind of a new gamer sort of asking kind of general questions that were very curious about the hobby. And I thought these questions were super insightful. And I thought some of the answers that they came up with, again, were super insightful. So we're just going to kind of read these. And, and the reason I'm doing this, in case you missed it before, is they got me super jazzed. And I was really talking at the podcast. And I was like, I was having all kinds of things that I wanted to say because I thought the questions were great. And I just felt like I wanted to sort of muse and talk about it a little bit. And then present them to all you folks here that would, uh, you know, get you kind of thinking about it. And if you got some comments, then please leave it here on the video or on the Board Game Geek Guild or something like that. Because I thought they were really interesting questions in the way that they were presented. So I'll try to do my best to sort of encapsulate that the way it was presented and then kind of give my thoughts on it. So here, the first question is, uh, what does it mean for groups to be self-selecting based on preferences of familiarity and their temperament? And so what I think they were trying to ask here was, so you've got your game group and maybe your game group is really into Euro games or your game group is, you know, maybe you, you all play Warhammer at the local store or you're a Magic the Gathering game group or you like to really play Rollin' Rights or whatever it is. And so what does it mean about that, that we can be very sort of self-selecting? And I thought that was very important and interesting because for me, when I got into the hobby, you know, kind of seriously back in like 2004, 2003, 4, 5 in that area, then, you know, the group that I played with, they really enjoyed Euro games. We played a lot of Puerto Rico. We played Kalis. We played Lonehurst and Catan and Carcassonne. And the list goes on and on. El Grande. And so for me... That was like a big sort of, you know, light bulb moment, eye-opening, like, look at all these cool Euro games. Not, these are nothing like Monopoly, you know, all that kind of thing. And so, uh, we, you know, well, I tried to throw a Meritrash game here and there at them, uh, but they, not, you know, most of them weren't into it. I think one or two were. And um, it just kind of depends on the people that you're with. But then as the time's gone along and I've had different game groups and, you know, more exposure and different experiences, and so my gaming taste has kind of shifted. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting 
concept of what this person was asking because uh, they had come to the group and then the group has the games that they like, which some of them in this particular group, they like the resistance a lot to the detriment, I think, of the host. But they also like big heavy Euros and things like that. And, you know, some other games here and there. So that's kind of like his exposure to the game and, or the, I'm sorry, to the hobby. And I just thought that was a, just an interesting kind of take of something, you know, listening to someone that sort of considers himself sort of a newbie or a new gamer who really loves and enjoys the hobby of kind of saying, you know, well, what is it about this? You know, our group sort of self-selects itself out. And so, you know, maybe there, that goes into other kinds of levels too, where, I don't know, I'll pick a stupid you know, example, but if somebody shows up and they're like filthy and smell and just, you know, they look like pig pen on the Peanuts cartoon, you know, we're probably going to self-select that person out of the group because, you know, we don't want to be around that because we don't want to smell stuff or whatever, or, or maybe, uh, well, I'll, I'll be, I'll be, uh, I'll be fair. You know, the group will we'll be known to throw F-bombs and stuff, but it's all within the realm of the magic circle. And like, there's never anywhere close to hard feelings. And, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And it's not like crazy, except for one guy. He knows who he is. <laughs> anyway, it's not me, although I can get in there. But, um, you know, so there's a temperament part of that too. So you could be with a group uh, that, you know, you know, MF this and GD that and all that. All in good fun, but you could totally hate that. And I could t- totally respect that. Um, you know, like if I'm playing a group with strangers, like if I go to the shop and play Warhammer or something, like I'm not like that at all. Like I'm very uh, composed because I don't know the people. Like I don't know who this person across the table is for me. But a group can be very self-selecting like that where, you know, just personality. I'm using this extreme example of like, you know, language and cursing. But that's an important part of it is your demeanor as well as an interesting way of self-selecting. And I think that's like, that is a, is a um, it's a kind of an obstacle. It's an interesting obstacle. And you know, there's a lot of things that can select somebody out of a group, and it makes it difficult, I think, for a new player to f- to get comfortable with a group. And you know, so do you play with somebody that's like already your friend, you know, versus somebody that do you just know them through the gaming, and then they become your friend? And so I've had you know that work both ways. Um, so that's just something an interesting thing to just kind of keep in the back of your head in terms of you know what's going on with your game group and stuff, and you know just be aware, I guess, of the, the, you know, things are being kind of self-selected out of, uh, you know, certain things like certain games may not hit the table because of just habits and things like that of your group, kind of your group, your, uh, uh, your group think, right? So I just thought that was a very interesting sort of approach as a new gamer. It's like, well, if I come in here, then, you know, what am I not being exposed to? What am I, what's being excluded from me? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and so then that, that you can get really deep on that topic, but I thought it was an interesting idea to just maybe take a step back and realize, okay, if a new person comes to the group, try to like, not just enforce, you know, automatically, you know, all of the, the group's thoughts on stuff. And just to be aware of that as a new player is like, they're trying to find what games they like, you know, what kind of hobby and stuff they want it to be for them. Anyway, that's kind of the short of it. The next one is a, is a weird question. And this is, why is chess usually played in silence as opposed to other games? It's not a weird question. That's actually, it got me really thinking. I'm like, what a simple question. But then after when I heard it, I'm like, wow. And so from a new gamer's perspective, this is a very interesting idea because a lot of some games are very loud. 
and some games are not loud. So chess is, you know, obviously two players very quietly thinking, trying to spatially sort of dissect what's happening in front of them on this grid. And then other games like, a, I don't know, Just One or some other party games are very loud games. And so the, the, the obvious answer is that the more strategic and thinky a game is, the quieter the game is. But that also is not necessarily always the case as well. I found familiar, familiarity with the game usually will raise the volume of the game. So as players, but not always, but as players, you know, you're, you're struggling to sometimes figure out what, what's going on. What am I supposed to do? What's legal? Where do I put this thing? Where does that thing go? And so a lot of folks, you know, sort of suck back into themselves and then try to figure things out. But then as the game um, plays on, then you know you get more boisterous because you're able to basically talk smack a little bit. So one game I can think of like that, that was a recent game is PAX Premier Second Edition, which I reviewed a couple weeks ago. And that's a relatively crunchy game, a lot kind of going on. There's a couple of rules exceptions you got to kind of watch out for. And so the first couple times we played it, I think it was a pretty quiet affair. But having played it now a few more times, uh, especially this is the last time I played it with the group um, on my Thursday nights. There was a lot of heavy smack talk and stuff like that. I mean, excessive. And so that's where the game kind of got to that next level. And so chess is not always a very quiet game. I used to live down in uh, in Oakland, California, in the Bay Area. And I would go over to San Francisco like every weekend. And uh, there was a certain area of downtown where folks would play chess. And it was, uh, it was very, there was lots of trash talk. And it was fun to go sit there and just kind of listen to people trash talk and really take it seriously. I mean, it got, sometimes it got like heated. <laughs> and then other times it was just some good fun. Um, so... Again, I think the familiarity and sort of the personality of that. But it's an interesting observation. So to hear like a new gamer say, well, this seems like a very quiet game. This seems like a very loud game. And I think that's actually not necessarily true. But I think it has a lot to do, again, with the familiarity of the game and the familiarity of the players with each other. And that's really going to kind of dictate the volume and the setting as well. Like if you go to a chess tournament and it's all like, you know, the, the clock timer thing, then that's obviously going to be very quiet because they're probably playing for some money or some prestige. All right, so that's the second question. The third question is, do game mechanics come from the real world? Is worker placement based in reality? And this is just another way of asking about how thematic a game is, but the way it was phrased on this podcast made a little bit more sense to me. And I actually talked about this a few years ago about worker placement games where the worker placement was actually thematic. And, you know, so if you think about a couple of games, I use my one example of Kalis, which is my favorite worker placement game, is I take a worker, when I put him or her in a building, and I have to pay this person to do the work. So they go in and they get, gather some resources, or maybe they build another building at this place. So I have to pay them, and then I have to, um, uh, they occupy that, occupy that space, and they're, they're using that action because they're making use of those resources in the town. A little bit abstract on that side, but it's a very thematic thing. Like in Stone Age, you send a number of workers out to gather stuff, and then they can make babies and grow more. And so those are very much, I think, grounded in reality. And not just in terms of like, oh, it makes thematic sense. It's also like it's a very real thing. Like I'm physically sending workers out into the fields or to the forest or whatever to cut things down. Or sometimes worker placement is very much just like, I'm just taking this thing from you. And that's not really grounded in reality. And so... One thing that I really 
seem to favor personally is physical and visual space in a game and less of a spreadsheet in a game like if something has like a track and stuff like it's sort of eh. why am i tracking this i can write this on paper what am i doing am i at work <laughs> and then you know but it could still be a good game like it's not just a deal I, it, those that kind of thing is not a deal breaker for me but it's just like okay so i'm tracking my income that's fair because you just some stuff is just a track it's just an account but if a lot of the game is just lots of counting then it's you sort of detract from the board gaminess of it from the tabletop of it and anyway so he, getting back to his question is like do the mechanics come from the real world? I was like, sometimes, yeah. And I think in the best games, somebody will take the real world thing. Like a miniature game is obviously real world's physical objects. But I think that sometimes the more that the mechanics can be grounded in uh, sort of mirroring what the physical activity is, sometimes that's, that's a better thing than if not. So there's that question. And the next one is here, why are there no lawyer or courtroom games? And... Uh, on the podcast, if you listen, I think uh, Matthew reads a list of like 20 games <laughs> that are lawyer or courtroom-based games. But there's not a lot. And you don't see a lot of, you know, well-known games that are based on a courtroom or some kind of lawyer theme to it. Uh, although, there was a game that came out last year from Victory Point Games, which was the Trial of Something or Other. Oh, I can't think of it now. Oh, I just looked on Board Game Geek. It's called High Treason, The Trial of Louis Riel, which I actually recommend that game. It's a very interesting game where you're kind of trying to sway, um, I believe the jury in that or the judge. I can't, it's been a couple of years. But you actually, you're trying to sort of play through a scenario as a solo player uh, to uh, to kind of sway a jury or sway somebody to to uh, find Louis Riel innocent or guilty against several But it's a, it's a very good game. Uh, so... That one just made me... I always think of that game because I've had this question come up before. Like, you don't really see like a courtroom game. Like, there's no law and order of the game or something where you're like trying to argue your case, which should be theoretically, you know, gameable, like gamifiable, where you'd have, you're, you know, you're kind of competing. You've got evidence that you're sort of competing with resources for, maybe something. Like, there's a way to abstract lawyerism and law and uh, a, a case or something like that in some way, shape, or form. Like, you've got Democker, which is an election game, but you're kind of trying to swing laws, swing uh, public support and opinion. You've got Watergate, which has come out, which is you've got evidence you're trying to build towards Nixon. Now, that's not in a court of law for Watergate, but it's kind of a similar idea. You're trying to build evidence and then, like, convict Nixon in some way in that game. So, but it's not something you see a lot of. So I'd be very interesting if we could see a really good game that is sort of transcends, you know, all these games I mentioned, The Trial of Louis Riel, Watergate, and stuff like that are, are good games. But it would be interesting to kind of see if something, you know, could come up with like some real massive hit of a game. Although Watergate could be, I, I think it's an excellent game, but we'll see. Um, but that was an interesting question. You know, sometimes you get people asking questions like, oh, you've got games about this and that and, you know, trading the Mediterranean and and uh, space and all this stuff. But why isn't there a game about law? So interesting question. Uh, the next question is sort of dovetailing off of that. Why is it assumed that fantasy and gaming works so well together? Why is there a strong connection? And they talk, they kind of expound a little bit more about this on that podcast, but my kind of take of it was it's very easy 
So there's actually sort of a subtext to this question, just to kind of be a little bit of a spoiler. Is why is it that so many gamers, theoretically, seem to really enjoy like fantasy and sci-fi? Like, why do those two worlds kind of go more hand in hand? Not so much like, why does fantasy make a good setting for a game? Well, that's because you're like achieving victory and fighting monsters and stuff, and that's fun, right? That's, I don't know. That's so you can kind of you can kind of progress and go. You can level up, and you know, Dungeons and Dragons is, a, is such a big thing, and obviously, board gaming and Dungeons and Dragons could get really close. There's a bunch of Dungeons and Dragons board games, all that stuff. But why is the game world and the fantasy sci-fi world so intertwined? And I think, uh, well, I think Matthew was the one on the podcast that said it's it's actually really not because if you go to Germany and you go to Essen. It's 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 been the case. It's changed a little bit over the last several years, but it's been the case that none of those really have much of a fantasy or sci-fi uh, setting in it. It's been a relatively new thing that Euro games, so to speak, will have that kind of setting. And so I don't know that that isn't true, though, because I mean I listened to an interview with Stefan Feld um, uh, about a month ago when he was at Gen Con on the Rolling Dice and Taking Names podcast. And he talked about, you know, he's, he likes to role play. He's, he's actually a uh, hobby actor. So he'll act in, in plays, and so he likes to play D&D and role playing. Or he used to play a lot of D&D role playing. I think he still does. I can't remember exactly. But he at least he did for a while. And so, again, that's a fantasy kind of thing. And, you know, I've played D&D a couple of times, and I think most of the people in my group have played it. All of them, even people that really only like to play Euro games now, um... I mean, not only, but that's their, their their favorite game is like a good crunchy Euro. Um, but they also have played D&D and stuff like that. So why is that, that, you know, the fantasy and the gaming combine? And I think it just has to do with make-believe in a way. I mean, to be really simple about it, is when you sit down and play any board game, even if it's like about ec- economics and stuff, you're still like getting your yayas off, like running a company like if you're playing an 18xx game you're still using your imagination right yeah you're doing a lot of math but you know you're still like you know i'm the president of this company i'm running your company in the ground so it's an even those games are an escapist kind of you know imagination engine and if you will just a different way of doing it i mean when you go to the movies um you know, a lot of movies nowadays are very popular that are fantasy superhero movies and stuff like that and Star Wars and everything. Um, but even movies that are not um, fantasy are still fantasy. Like, it really, it really, I think, be, so because you're in this world of make-believe, you you kind of tend to bleed through, right? So th- I think the question is, you know, okay, just why do so many moviegoers like fantasy? Well, I think because all movies are fantasy. So I think in some ways, all games are fantasy. Yes, there's orcs and elves and stuff in some and none in others. But I think there's really a bleeding through that, any kind of artistic or creative endeavor. But it's interesting because that's a question you kind of get. is like, oh, you're a dork, you're a nerd. You know, you like games, you like Dungeons and Dragons, you like Lord of the Rings and you like Star Wars. It's all the same thing. And it's like, well, whatever. <laughs> but, you know, all that stuff bleeds together anyway. Okay, doke. So next question is, why do you always gain power in games? Because in a narrative or in a story, you often lose power. Or the protagonist often loses power. And I thought that was interesting. And they had a pretty good answer for it on the podcast. It was basically, well, it's no fun to lose power. Uh, kind of getting back to the fantasy idea of it. And I think I don't really have much to say to this one, honestly, because, um, you know, I guess you could play a game where you like you start off powerful 
and then they take everything away from me and you've got to build it back up. And a lot of times, I know in a lot of video games, you kind of start off and you're playing through the tutorial, but it's also like the introduction to the story of the game is you have like all this cool stuff. You're like, whoa, I can do all this stuff. And then like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I fell down to earth or whatever, or lost my memory. And now I've kind of regather all the skills that I had, which I actually kind of hate video games when I do that. I'm like, oh, I, you took all the cool toys away from me. I thought I was, I thought this was level zero. And then we were just going up from here, but like, oh no, you show me what's going to happen at the end of the game. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, so I think that's basically because you don't, really want to you know lose things when you're playing a game although i think that could be you know D and role-playing games notwithstanding which you could that would be an interesting role-playing game right if you start off like you were the owner of a company or you were the leader of a country or uh whatever you were the chief of the tribe or you know anything you can think of and then your story is your descent and your fall from grace um that could be interesting as a role-playing game. Whereas, I don't really see too many games. I'm trying to think, there's probably a game where you are losing, but you're trying not to lose as bad as you normally would. So whatever you end up with is like more than everybody else or something. So that's an interesting concept though, I think coming from a game where everything is always like this, usually this upward trajectory, or at least you're going up and you might get knocked off course, but it's always in an upward trajectory. It's never downward or, you know, downward and maybe like settling at some point. The never, ne- not never, but you usually never, ever, ever see a game. And I'm having a hard time coming up with one. So I thought that was a very interesting question about always gaining power, always kind of accumulating more, getting more wealth, more strength, you know, leveling up your character, getting to the next level, you know, controlling more territory and all that kind of stuff. Why is it, why is it always about getting more, you know? Because it's probably more fun than losing. So there you go. All right. So the next question is just, I, I want to stay with that last one <laughs> because that would be really interesting to see a game about that where you kind of lose a little bit. That would be cool. I would just, if anybody knows a designer, that would be fun. Uh, next one is Scrabble a millennium scale game like chess, go, backgammon? Are there other candidates? So the question means, We'll be, we've been playing chess for whatever, a thousand years, a few hundred years, go, backgammon for a long time. Is Scrabble one that we'd be playing like in a thousand years or 500 years? And uh, and the unanimous, I believe, answer on the podcast was yes, and I would agree because Scrabble is just, it's so simple. It's a board with some tiles with letters. And no matter what language you speak, unless you have tiles that are not the alphanumeric, you know, Arabic letters that we use in English. I think that's what they're called, the Arabic letters. That's not Arabic, though, because Arabic is a different uh, writing. I can't remember what the name of our letters is. Arabic, isn't it? I don't remember. Anyways, it doesn't matter. So you have, like, you know, you can get Chinese letters and Japanese letters, but the same idea, right? You just, you know, print it for, for whatever language you've got, and then you can just play. And, yeah, I think people will be playing Scrabble, probably in 500 years. I don't know, as far as other candidates, I don't think Monopoly actually will be being played in 500 years. I really don't think it will be. Uh, I think we have a more of a shot of Catan being played in 500 years, because Monopoly's been around since, what, like the 20s? So it's been about 100 years. It's around. But do people in China play Monopoly? They might. Do people in Africa play Monopoly? I don't know. Do you? I mean, I don't have that many viewers outside the United States and Great Britain, but, uh, you know, do folks in all these other countries play Monopoly, actually? Is it just an American 
thing is. Is it even a thing in Great Britain? I mean, I'm not sure. I think it is. I think it is. I think I've heard folks from, from there tell me they play it. Anyway, kind of tangenting on Monopoly there. But I don't think Monopoly will be being, being played in 100 years. I really don't. Um, Scrabble, I think so. I think Catan, maybe. A Ticket to Ride might be being played in 100 years. Uh, so what's a good candidate? I don't know. What's a D&D will be being played in 100 years or 500 years? 100%. It'd probably still be called Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, it may not be, but there'll certainly be something that's pretty close to D&D uh, being played in 500 years, for sure. On with dice, with paper or a tablet or whatever holographic device you write on. But without a screen, mostly. I mean, there will probably be like VR D&D, whoopity-doo, but you also have probably, uh, you know, real-life face-to-face imagination D&D. Probably with some miniatures or not. You know, that'll still happen. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably some good examples. I mean, as far as, like, these new crop of games here, like these Euro games and the Ameritrash games and this whole, like, you know, renaissance or whatever nonsense of games that we have going on, you know, is there one game out of this group? That will kind of, like, Dominion? No. Ticket to Ride? No. You know, Catan? You know, Warhammer? No. I don't know. I mean, people will still be playing miniature games, I'm sure. People will still be painting miniatures. People have been painting for, like, a long time. <laughs> for longer than they've been writing and speaking, I think. So people will still be painting things. But, um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. How do you know? How how could you do that? So the next question, sort of dovetailing off that, is why is Monopoly still so popular? And I think that's just because it's just been there. It's like, there's a lot of things that we do as, as people, as individuals, as societies and groups, that we just do because it's always been done, and that's how we go. And so a kid wants to play a board game, you get out the Monopoly, you play that, you play the Candyland... You know, I mean, maybe some of that, maybe some of that board gaming stuff is going to go away because you see a lot of kids these days with tablets and phones and stuff when they're super young. Uh, my kids are both, well, technically grown, um, but we they didn't get any electronic devices until they were uh, into their tweens, into junior high and stuff. Then we started slowly, like you know, give them a phone and stuff like that, but um, and the tablets and stuff eventually, but. Now you see kids with like that are like five, which which is nothing. I'm not making a judgment, but I'm just saying, like eh, you know, like I'm sure that it depends on each kid, and you know, you got screen time and all that stuff that you kind of have to control. But in terms of like the, the amount of board games they want to play, I think probably people watching this video, if you've got kids, you're maybe putting board games in front of them, but maybe a lot of parents aren't. You know, like, think of the, there's like 7 billion people. Like, most people aren't having that put in front of you. So I wonder if there's sort of a cutoff point after, like, maybe the Generation X and the Millennials and whatever, whoever's after that. Maybe there's a generation or two down the road where that cuts off and, like, board games don't really... There'd be some retro movement, probably, but it'd probably be very niche. Uh, but as far as the question, why is Monopoly so popular? Again, it's just kind of been there. I don't think it'll continue to be popular because I don't think it'll just be kind of be there. I don't know that any young kids, a lot of young kids, I don't know what the critical mass is, but I don't think it's a lot of young kids that are actually going to be playing Monopoly. Um, I don't know. But but I think, again, why is it so popular? It's just because it's been there. And that's what it's just been kind of like, you know, it's like anything, McDonald's, it's like, 
anything, anything derogatory that's just been there and you don't really like. <laughs> you get a whole bunch of things about that. Electoral college. You know, I'm, all right, I'm teasing. But <laughs> anyway, I just, I had to come up with something, man. Just give me a break. All right. All right. Um, next question is, will board games have a crash like video games did in the 80s? And I th- I think no. I think um, uh, on, the, on their podcast, they talked a lot about how video games had a crash. But since that crash in the 80s, it's just been up, 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 up. And just the technology and it's like there's not really a crash in sight for video games. It doesn't look like there is. And I don't really think there is for board games. Although I feel like may- there might be one, but I think it's a ways off. Like I think there's enough... There's enough people like my age, I'm 43, like rediscovering board games that are like, oh, whoa, I remember playing Monopoly, right? So that you have that little seed. You had that fun with your family playing Monopoly or Yahtzee or something. And be like, oh, this game is actually good and it's rewarding and satisfying when we're done. And so you got enough of these people still around that are rediscovering things. And then younger folks than me, you know, people in their teens and their 20s and stuff that are, are, are hearing about this because we are in kind of a board game boomer renaissance. So the information is still like spreading. It's still bubbling, right? The energy is still there. But as far as that, like, I think there's probably, there's probably like two sort of currents sort of fighting each other is maybe that current of, of parents and stuff like my age and, and younger parents that are um, not putting the board games in front of the kids and then those of us that are, and there's more of them than there are of us kind of thing, right? So which, but which, which one hits critical mass first, right? And then I think why are we a generation away from a crash or two generations, or maybe my math is wrong and maybe it's sooner. Um, I think we'll see some tapering off in the number of games being made, but it's like a thousand or 3000 every year. Even if we're, even if there's only like a hundred new board games every year, like, cool, that's enough. <laughs> Like, it's, it's like, well, it's only 100. There was a crash. Like, you don't need more than 100. So it's not a crash. It's just market correction. <laughs> I don't know. Like, what's a crash? I don't, I don't know. A crash is if they're, like, are there publicly owned board game companies besides Come On Inc.? I don't think so. So, like, how are you going to crash? There's no stock market. It's just a company. There could be a new one tomorrow. Okay. I don't know. So that's a tough one. It's not my area of expertise. So the next last one here is, can you be good at board games without being good at math or English? Is it a separate skill or combination of skills? So to sort of elucidate on that, the question was, could you can have sort of like a prodigy violinist or something, or somebody that's like naturally good at something that may not be very good at math or English, they may not excel at that, be like kind of a natural talent or skill. And is there something about board gaming like that, that is. And so they were some kind of going back and forth on the podcast. And I think definitively, actually, there is, yes, because you can have some prodigy chess players that are very good at that. That probably are good at a lot of other things, too, because there's a little bit of, I think there's a little mathematics and geometry going on and sort of logic reasoning uh, based on, you know, kind of the board state and everything. So I think most of the time you're going to have somebody that is, if they're good at chess or some other board game, they're going to be good at other things. But I think there's probably some wiggle room there in terms of trying to quantify intelligence in a way that um, there's probably a, a somewhat of a distinct sphere or, or space that has to do with like the gaming and the spatial reasoning and stuff. Because a lot of games, frankly, are basically math. 
you know, if you've got an economic game, it's a lot of math. Um, you've got a lot of probability calculating and some of this stuff. Um, you've got a lot of, you know, English skills, reading the written word, processing what it means, you know, sort of, you know, applying that written word to, a, you know, rule set and all that kind of stuff and doing that. So you need some good logic reasoning, some good English and some good, basically you need the SAT. If it sounds like you got logic reading and math. Um, so, but I wouldn't go so far as to say, like, if you did better or worse on your SAT, you, you would be a better or worse uh, gamer. Because there's also that little intangibleness of the theme. And, and as, as much as it, it might attract you to sort of apply yourself to a game, you know, whereas, you know, uh, school topics and stuff, maybe your application will be, you know, you'd be a little bit less enthusiastic about it. Whereas if you get into a game that's about a topic you think is really neat or cool or exciting, then you might put in your application there. But I also think, I think there's a spatial visual aspect of it that gets people excited. It kind of gets their intelligence juices flowing as well. So I think there's something to that. Like I think the, the, the final answer is, yeah, you should be good at math and English if you want to be good at games. I think that's you know, 90% true. I think those kind of go hand in hand. But I think there's also there's something other esoteric thing that's probably not yet been quantified. And maybe it could be, and maybe it can't be because there's also different weird studies on what intelligence actually is or isn't. There's a whole idea, concept of emotional intelligence and there's spatial intelligence and stuff like that. A lot of athletes probably have a different kind of intelligence, uh, especially a professional athlete. You know, they have the, the physical skills, but there's also the mental tactics and reasoning and uh, stress and uh, overcoming stress and stuff like that. That is a mental faculty uh, to overcome, you know, the heat of the moment and that kind of stuff. And so there's some of that kind of applies to the games as well. Uh, and then, you know, if there's a deduction game, you know, there's, there's, if you're good at lying <laughs> and you're playing werewolf or something, if you're a good liar, that's a good skill to have too. So anyway, kind of all over the place on that last one, but I, uh, I think there's something to it. There's some other esoteric possibly thing. And it's only esoteric because I think I can't figure it out. Um, and I don't know that anybody else has. So it'll remain esoteric for now, but hopefully become more concrete in the future. So that's the 10 questions I thought they were interesting. I've been looking for an excuse to go over these. Uh, hopefully the reviews at the beginning didn't bum anybody out too much. But oh well, you know, can't like everything. And uh, anyway, that's it for this, uh, this month. Have a good uh, September. And uh, we're moving into fall, so that's super exciting. <laughs> I'm a summer person. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so, yep. Uh, so have a good month, and uh, take care, and leave your comments. Thank you.